Good morning, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here. I wanna welcome those of you that are joining us at the Stafford campus and those of you that are at Fredericksburg and online. I wanna thank Justin, because he just reminded me to uh, welcome the people that are in Fredericksburg. So you guys need to thank Justin. Not that I'd forgotten about you, but Justin's looking out for me, because he knows student pastors, we're like the almost pastors. You know that, right? (laughs) We're like the almost pastor. Uh, And so, but as an almost pastor, it's really cool because you can do other things that real pastors can't get away with. (laughs) Like I'm about to make an announcement for student ministry right now and no one can stop me, baby. (laughs) Right? Because I'm not a real pastor. So uh, we're going to do our laser tag event for middle schoolers on October 22nd and for high schoolers on October 23rd. You can head to the events page. You can check that out. I want you to know that your student ministry team is responsible for this because I wanted to kill it. We've done it for a couple years. It's been fantastic, but I always subscribe to the philosophy. It is better to walk away from something one year too early than two years too late. Uh, I, am, I am known as the, the cutter of all things that are good. And when we sat down, I was like, guys, we've, we've spent this dollar. It's a really great event. I know the kids love it, but it's time to find something new. And everybody around the table said no. We took a vote. I was defeated six to one. <laughs> and uh, we are having laser tag on the 22nd and the 23rd. So uh, you have your, your student uh, ministry team, a couple of high schoolers and some people to thank for that, but it'll be a great time. We roll out bays of hail. My wife and some other uh, people light it up. It looks amazing. It, it's a lot of fun. You definitely, if you are the proud owner of a middle schooler or a high schooler, you're going to want to drop them off and go get dinner and then pick them back up. So on time, wait, never mind. We'll get, we'll get to that later. Uh, so we're going to be coming out of Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16, and we are going to blaze a trail all the way to Matthew 20, 16. So uh, you, hopefully you brought some water. Uh, hopefully your chair came with a seatbelt or you have a chance to limber up because we are going to set speed records. We are going to blaze through this scripture. So those of you that like to follow along, that's where we are. Uh, Matthew 19, 16, but before we dig in, we'll set the scene. So in Jesus' ministry, he walked around a lot, right? And he taught as he walked. Crowds would literally come to him, they would gather, and he would teach them, and they would fire off questions. And he would take these questions, and, and he would answer them. He didn't just teach in the temple, like he taught as a way of life. As he was going from place to place, as he arrived at destinations, people felt comfortable to just kind of fire away questions at Jesus, And Jesus took on those questions and he gave very public answers. And so in the midst of one of those scenes is kind of where we find ourselves today. So with no further ado, we'll get down to business. Uh, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? I think that's a brilliant question. Jesus, what good thing must I do so that I know I'll live forever in heaven? I think that's a question that burns in the the heart of a lot of people. What do I need to do to enjoy eternal life? What good thing must I do? Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. 
So Jesus identifies the question. He says, what good thing must I do? And Jesus goes, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You think that good means you swore less than the guys on your soccer team, you cut down on uh, your cigarettes, and you did three nice things on Saturday. Like, that's what you think good means. He goes, no, there's only one who is good, but maybe you should give that a try and keep the commandments. Give being good a try. Why don't you go keep the commandments? Now, in Jewish culture, it's not just the ones that we know, but they had whole other books about what command. There are literally hundreds of commandments. Jesus said, keep these, and the man's mind, I'm sure, went, like, I don't even know them all. How am I supposed to keep them? So he asks what I think is another brilliant question. Uh, He says, which ones? I think that's brilliant. This is what every one of us sitting in high school algebra did when the teacher passed us that uh, 90-problem packet. It was like, hey, do these. We went, um, which, which ones? Because there's a lot of these. Can I do the evens? Can I do the odds? Can I do the first 15? Because let's be honest. If I don't know how to do this, I'm not going to be able to do three. And if I do know how to do this, I don't need to do 90. Right? So let, which, Jesus, come on, let's narrow this down. Let's get down to brass tacks. Which ones do I need to keep? So Jesus replies, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus hits the highlights. Those are five of the 10 commandments and the second greatest commandment ever given, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he he hits some that this gentleman would have been intimately acquainted with. These are famous ones. These are the highlights. These are ones he can recognize and he does recognize them because he, I have to imagine he's really excited by this because his next reply is, all these I have kept, the young man said. I'm, I just see him going like, yes, I did it. Now, if he honored his father and mother, he's better than every one of us that has ever lived. But he claims he's done it. I don't know the man. We're not gonna call him a liar, but he goes, yes, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? The obvious implication is he thinks he's about to get knighted as perfect for eternal life. Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, notice we're not using that term good anymore. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was expecting to be affirmed and blessed by a very popular rabbi. Instead, he got challenged. He said, okay, you good. You did all those things. That's good. Now go sell your possessions and follow me. And the man went, ooh. Can we go back to the honor your father and mother thing? Because that that seems easier. Because the man was very rich. And he's, he's torn by this because he's like, oh, I kind of like this life. Maybe I don't want eternal life as much as I think I did. And he goes away dejected because he had it wired. Think of what Jesus is asking him. This guy's rich. He's got status. Like, think of what Jesus is asking this guy to give up. He's asking him to give up 
everything that he thinks makes him important. And that is a huge ask. He's saying, do you really want this eternal life? Let's test you a little bit. And so then Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to teach them. He says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He says, look, I was right here in front of this guy. He asked for eternal life. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. This guy was literally four feet from what he was asking for, but he couldn't see me. Why couldn't he see me? Because he can't see what he lacks. He can't see through his wealth. He's got it all. He doesn't have to worry about where his food is coming from. He doesn't have to worry about his... He doesn't have any worries. He is the all-star. He cannot see who is directly in front of him. He cannot see that what he was literally asking for was right there because he is too wealthy. And Jesus doubles down on it, right? He gives us an absurd hyperbole. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to see what they need and follow me. And this teaching through the disciples for a loop. They had no idea what to do with this teaching. They say, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Because in this time, as well as our time, if we're to be honest, you do what God wants you to do, you get blessings, right? This man was obviously rich because he had obeyed the commandments. And when God saw how awesome he was, he started giving him money. And when God saw how awesome he was, he started giving him status. This was first century line of thought. And to be honest, it's kind of ours too. And he probably had a ton of money because he was inheriting wealth because his family had obeyed the commandments for centuries and just passed down all the goodness onto him. Because, you know, if you were born blind in that time, they'd ask really penetrating questions like, hey, what did you do wrong that your baby was born blind? Because God would not have given you that if you didn't do something wrong. You earned that. If you became blind later in life, they'd say, you need to repent of your sin. Because God would not have made you blind if you didn't do something that really, really offended him. So for Jesus to turn away this man that they looked at, that the disciples went, this is it. This is the pinnacle of our society. This is what everyone aspires to. And Jesus turns them away. They're all going, um then where do I fall in this? Because if he doesn't make it, nobody's making it. This man is blessed by God. This man has obviously earned God's favor. And if Jesus is turning him away, what hope do I have? And they say, who can be saved? You can hear the desperation. And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That is a nothing answer. Who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. It's like saying, hey, pass the salt. With God, all things are possible. <laughs> right, but I'd really like some salt. Right, that, that's a nothing answer. It doesn't answer the question. So Peter steps up and gets really down to the heart of the matter, right? He says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? That's the question, right? Look, 
that guy's here, we're here, but we've left everything. This is like what your kid does when they're trying to get more ice cream or something. Like, I, I did my homework, Dad, can I get some more ice cream? Right, like I wanna remind you of all the good things I did, so, so what do you have for me? We've left our houses. You know, we've left everything for you. What will be for us? And now Jesus gives him a specific answer. He says, truly I tell you at the renewal of things, this is where Jesus comes back and puts to right what went wrong. This imperfect earth is renewed and restored and creation is as it was intended to be. Not a kingdom of earth and a kingdom of heaven separate, but creation as it was originally intended to be. He says, hey, when I come back, when I put everything to right and the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I have to imagine Peter went, yes. That's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted to hear. But then Jesus goes beyond that. And he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times and will inherit eternal life. And this would have been a revolutionary teaching for the disciples. Right off the bat, they would have said, that's it. That's eternal life. You love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? That's what the young ruler that was wealthy missed. He had kept all the commandments. He had done some good things, but he didn't love Jesus. We love Jesus. We follow Jesus. We've given up things for Jesus. That's it. We are the top rung. We are the ones that, so he's way down here now and we're up here. This is revolutionary. Now we've got the secret of eternal life and we can spread it around because we're not selfish people. Right, we can now give everyone the key to eternal life. It's follow Jesus, revolutionary teaching. It's not how much money God puts in the bank. It's if you love him or not. And Jesus doesn't end there. He delivers a very curious line. He says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And again, I could imagine the disciples' face at this point going, hey, we were good. Like, you could have just stopped there. Like, because that's a good truth, right? Like, that's a good truth. Love Jesus, follow Jesus, eternal life. All that's really good. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He delivers a very curious line that closes that part of the conversation where he says, but the first will be like the last, and the last will be like the first. Now, I did grow up in the church. My mom brought me and my brother to church. We were not Christians. So I don't want you to confuse elementary school, 10-year-old Jason Windsor with some kind of theologian or something like that. But I was aware of this verse, and I interpreted it in a very earthly way when I heard it. My name is Jason Windsor. Starts with a W. So in elementary school, anytime we lined up at a water fountain, I was last except for the poor Y kid that was behind me, right? All right, guys, line up alphabetically at the water fountain. Ugh. All right, guys, line up alphabetically for snack. Why? All right, guys, line up. For, it doesn't matter. Line up for anything. You're dead last. But I knew that the first would be the last. So I knew that in heaven's water fountain, W's right there. 
and that's how I would placate myself, right? I'd be like, suckers, get your water. Go ahead and get it. Because we're only in elementary school for five years, but we're in heaven forever, baby. And I'll be drinking from that water fountain every time first, and I'll even glance over my shoulder. Hope y'all enjoyed that. Right? And I have to imagine that on a, a less selfish level, that's kind of how the disciples took this as well, right? Like, hey, we're the last here. Like, we were fishermen when you called us, not rabbis. We are not rich. We follow you and you're homeless, Jesus. We got no bed to sleep in. Most of the food we come from, people give us, right? We are the last, I have to imagine he's thinking. So this is, this is another great teaching. But less we misunderstand Jesus continues the conversation in Matthew 20. And he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So he's going to give us a taste of the kingdom of heaven. This is what he says. And for those of you that didn't realize it, you're now back in high school English class. He's going to give them a simile, a comparison of two seemingly unlike things using the word like or as. You're welcome. He's going to do this. They would have been very well acquainted with vineyards and workers and earning a day's wage. All of this would have been super familiar to them. And he's going to use these super familiar concepts to give them a taste of the kingdom of heaven, which is completely foreign to us. We really struggle with how economics and life works in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is how Jesus is going to go about teaching us. The day started at 6 o'clock. So the, the landowner, who represents God, goes and picks up some workers, us, and he agrees. I've picked you up at the beginning of the day, so I will give you a day's wage, a denarius. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. We will come work for you. Takes them back to the vineyard. All of this, very familiar and makes sense, right? Work a day, what do you get? A day's wage. Landowner is fair. Workers are happy. Everybody's good to go. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. He goes and gets some more workers three hours later. He says, all right, guys, come on, we got some more work to do, and I will pay you whatever is right. Presumably, whatever the math works out on, on a denarius minus three hours, right? That should be what is right. He goes out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. Requires more workers at a progressively later part in the day, right? First workers come in at six, then at nine, then at noon, then at three, and then one hour before quitting time, 6 p.m., he goes and gets some people that still haven't worked, and he says, hey, you guys come with me too. We're going to work. Unless you think like he's picking them up in a truck, this is first century Palestine. They're walking. So if they've picked up at five, they've got to walk to the vineyard, somebody's got to tell them what to do, i got to imagine these guys are about to put in 15 minutes of solid work. Right? Because you... They don't just start working, they gotta get there. They gotta get acclimated, they gotta ask questions, they gotta get tools, they gotta fill canteens. This is gonna be like 15 whole minutes of really solid work. 
The landowner continues. When the evening comes, which is 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired and going to the first. Up till now, everything's as expected, right? The workers have come in. The day is about to close. It's about time to settle up. A day's work gets a day's wage. So the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each one received a denarius. So the guys that put in 20 to 15 minutes of really solid work get a day's wage. And I have to imagine they feel like they've hit the lottery. We worked 15 minutes and we got a day's wage. This is amazing, this is fantastic. Come hire us at five o'clock anytime you have more work to do. But you know who's even more excited than them? The workers that got picked up at six o'clock in the morning, because they're doing math. They're like, I am conceivably about to get two weeks worth of pay, because if those guys got a, a whole day's wage and I worked 12 more times than they did, I am about to get flat paid. Paid. Even if he only gives me six times, even though I work 12 times more, even if he only gets, that's a whole week's worth of wages. We're going out to dinner tonight. We're going to the donkey store. That vacation that we filled up, like everything is about to, yes, yes, this is amazing. They're very excited, it says in scripture. So when those who came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more, which makes sense. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. We have calluses on our hands. My clothes are drenched in sweat. Those guys you brought in, they didn't even break a sweat. In the 15 minutes, they took two water breaks. I'm sunburned on the back of my neck. How in the world have you seen fit to make them equal to us? This is a travesty. This is atrocity like a kindergartner. This is not fair. This is not fair. This is how the landowner answered. He answers one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? We relate to these guys. Like, isn't it fair? Well, the landowner says, you did agree to work for a day's wage, right? Have I done you any wrong? But in our hearts, you and I would say, oh, absolutely, you've done me wrong. We can't quite explain it. We can't. But we feel like these guys have been done wrong. Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Landowner says, you can't tell me what to do with my money. And now all of a sudden we relate to the landowner. You don't get to tell me how to spend my money. Did I treat you unfairly? No. Did I give you what we agreed upon? No. Oh, yes. Ooh. <laughs> Strike that. We're not taping that. Yes. Or are you envious because 
I am generous. Bingo. Are you envious because I am generous? First sounds last is really good when we're talking about water fountains in heaven. First will be last, not quite as awesome when we're relating with workers that have worked 12 hours getting paid the same as workers who put in one hour. But this is the kingdom of heaven. This is what he says. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a vineyard where some people end up calloused and sunburned and sweaty and others show up at the last minute and everybody gets paid the same and we are offended for the sake of the ones that have worked 12 hours because we hate when our hard work goes undiscovered. We despise when the one who put in minimal effort gets the same result as we who labored hard. But the first will be last, and the last will be first. In giving Peter this insight into the kingdom, he also gives us an insight into our own hearts. It is very easy to be offended by what Peter Yancey calls the scandalous mathematics of grace, because grace is very difficult to understand. We sympathize with the workers, but when Jesus says the first are like the last, he means it on multiple levels. Let's go back to the conversation that started it all. When he said, hey, what good thing must I do? And Jesus said, hey, there's only one who is good, and it's not you. There's only one who is good. Everyone who has ever lived has taken an active role in corrupting the perfection that Jesus created. When Jesus created this world, he called it good. And as we've seen from these scriptures, good means perfect. So it was perfect in its infancy. It was created perfect and we killed perfection. The first are like the last in that regard. Everyone has a part in corrupting the innocence that was God's original creation. And I have no interest in being crude this morning, but this is the best analogy I have to explain it because we think of spiritual death as an overreaction because that's what we stand. When we killed good, we stand correctly accused and judged for eternal death because that is the penalty for corrupting innocence. And we don't like that. It seems like an overreaction, but I want you to think of it this way. What's the most perfect thing that we have in this world? What's the most innocent, perfect thing that we can attempt to understand what it relates to to kill perfection? I think it's a newborn baby. I think that is what God gives us to show us a glimpse of what innocence and potential and perfection looks like. What does the person that corrupts that innocent newborn deserve? What does the person that continues to do it every day of his or her life deserve? Exactly. So when we say the first or last, the best of us still deserve eternal death. When we are offended by the scandalous mathematics of grace, we cut the heart out of what is very best about Christ Jesus. 
when we despise the very thing that leads us to repentance, when we despise the best thing that we have to offer a broken world, we rip the heart out of Christianity and make it nothing more than climbing a corporate ladder. Why did the prostitutes and the lepers and the outcasts and the tax collectors feel comfortable approaching Jesus to the point of even touching him because they shouldn't have. They were on the lowest rung of society and he was a rabbi. You prayed that your male children became rabbis in this culture because they would have achieved the status. They had no business feeling comfortable enough to approach Jesus, much less touch him, much less dare to share a meal with him. And this confounded first century Palestine as the other religious leaders wondered aloud, why does he eat with sinners? There's no way he would let her touch him if she knew who she was. but he was comfortable and not only welcomed them, he sought them out. He went to houses. Why? Because this is the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of earth, that makes no sense. But in the kingdom of heaven, you and I are enough because he says we're enough. In the kingdom of heaven, nothing you or I do pleases God more or less. We are who he says we are. In the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't give wages, he gives gifts. And I didn't say all that to heap shame or hate or anger on you. I said that, thank God we all get presents and not curses. Because ain't nobody showed up at 12 hours and worked hard their whole life, baby. We're all the 11th hour worker that was snatched from the defeat of death by the grace of a loving God. Thank God we get grace. This is the kingdom of heaven. So Peter, who is saved? Whoever, when Jesus says, follow me, answers. So Peter, you get eternal life. You abandoned your home. You followed Jesus. Ultimately, you were crucified upside down. And you get the same eternal life as a serial murderer that on his deathbed recognizes who Jesus is. We are offended by that. But this is the kingdom of heaven. And it is a better way than the earthly kingdom. It is a way of love and not jealousy. It is a way of grace and mercy and perfection. Because there is only one who is perfect. This is the greatest gift that we as the people of God, that we as a family have to give. I've walked away from the faith. Some of you have walked away from the faith. Some of you have yet to walk away from the faith, but you will. And it will never be our moral superiority that brings you back. It will be the thumbprint of grace imprinted upon you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will be because you know that even at the 11th hour, you can walk back into his loving embrace and the first will be like the last. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give and not the wages that we deserve. We thank you that your kingdom is better than anything that we could imagine. And we thank you that we receive your grace. Let us be ambassadors of grace. Let us flush the frustration of comparison. Let us flush the lie that we have outworked somebody else. Let us flush the lie that we are deserving 
of the eternal life that you've given us. And let us celebrate when our brother and sister is blessed. Let us forgive as you have forgiven us. Let us be as free with the grace as you are. Let this be as revolutionary teaching in our life as it was in your disciples' lives who literally changed the world with your message of grace. We imperfectly love you, but you perfectly love us. And we ask for these things by the power of the Holy Spirit in your son's name.